The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. It's the Ellis Martin Report. If you stay tuned, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Is it strange that companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here? No way. They want you to know what's going on. Catch us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, I'll speak with Brad Thompson, CEO of Oncolytics Biotech, trading as ONCY on the NASDAQ and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics has developed a reovirus called Reolysin that attacks cancer tumors while leaving healthy cells alone. We'll catch up with Harry Fleming, executive chairman of Texas-based Noblis Health. Trading on the New York Stock Exchange is HLTH. Noblis has successfully developed a cadre of boutique surgical centers in Houston, Dallas, and Phoenix. Ross Orr, president of Backtech Environmental, trading on the OTC as BCCEF and on the Canadian Stock Exchange's BAC, will discuss the company's proprietary bioleaching technology, which remediates highly toxic tailings resulting from abandoned mining operations. And I'll speak with our friend David Morgan about war, religion, robotics, and the marginalization of the American workforce. Oh boy, let's begin the program. Join me now for a conversation with Noblest Health's Executive Chairman of the Board, Harry Fleming. Noblest Health trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. The company owns and manages ambulatory and acute care facilities, delivering health care services in Dallas, Houston, Scottsdale, and elsewhere in the U.S. Noblest's focus is improving access to care and patient outcomes by providing minimally invasive procedures that can be performed in low-cost, outpatient settings. They utilize innovative direct-to-patient marketing and proprietary technologies to drive patient engagement and education, resulting in added surgical volume and outsized returns to investors. Harry, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. For our new listeners to the program, if you wouldn't mind, please give us a synopsis of the business of Nobilis Health. So Nobilis is a different kind of healthcare company. While we have traditional surgery centers and hospitals in our portfolio, it's the way we run our business that really separates us from the other companies out there there. For example, most of the bigger players own a multiple number of hospitals and outpatient centers throughout the country, and their model is they'll get together with a group of doctors, they'll form a partnership for each center, and those particular doctors bring their business, whatever it is, to that center, and that's how they uh, make their money. What we do is a little different, so we are really trying to take advantage of the consumerism that's happening in this country, and what we do is we market services and doctors to the public, and we drive cases to our center. So as a company, we will typically own 100% of our centers and the doctors won't be partners, but they will be the physicians that handle the case flow that we drive from marketing. And so we market in a few areas, kind of limited, but spine, bariatric, podiatry, and an OBGYN, minimally invasive procedure. The doctors like this model better than the partnership model because what happens in that typical partnership, as you can imagine, let's say you have 10 doctors with 10 different practices. They all have equal ownership. There's certain doctors 
doctors that will produce more. There are certain doctors that will work harder. And there's doctors also in that group that will start buying interest in other centers, so they start diluting their case flow. And this creates all sorts of problems with the other partners. And we've seen so many of those partnerships fail. It's really inured to our benefit in that we've been able to purchase over the last couple of years several centers that we call distressed assets. These are partnerships that ran bad, and so we were able to get in for a cost which is much lower than our original build cost. So it's been very good for our business model. Now, you've just resigned as president of Noblis, and you will remain on as executive chairman of the board, leaving you to oversee additional mergers and acquisitions. Now, I imagine that your activities have really stepped up in that arena. Let's talk about that. Sure. When I resigned, let's go back about six months. We were a company that had grown tremendously over the prior 12 months. I would describe our management team as somewhat thin at that time. But because of a couple of key acquisitions, we really were able to build a strong and deep management team. And that gave me the opportunity now to step out of the day-to-day affairs, out of the operations of the business. I really focus on really my main expertise, which is M&A. So my background for last 30 years has been as a lawyer and business principal in deals and primarily doing M&A deals. This is where I perform the best for the company and so it made sense to take me out of the day-to-day affairs and let me focus solely on acquisitions. So in that regard, we built a formal M&A team within the company. There are six of us in this group and we're out there looking for deals because of our public presence. We now have people coming to us with deals, which is a nice thing because we can evaluate many deals at the same time. And as we've acquired companies over the last 18 months or so, we've really focused on distressed assets because we knew that our marketing could turn them around immediately. And that's proven true in every one of the acquisitions we've made. Just to highlight quickly one example, we purchased Victory Houston. It's a small hospital in Houston, 26-bed hospital. This is about three weeks ago we closed that transaction. That hospital was doing about 70 cases a month and it was losing money. As we ran our numbers yesterday in the first week of May, we had already set 80 cases for the month. We expect by the end of the month, we'll do approximately 130 cases there. So that's above our break-even point. Our very first month of operations, it's turned profitable. We can do this time and time again, and we certainly will keep looking for those opportunities. But with our recent announcement where we raised a little over 30 million U.S., for the company. We built that for acquisitions. And the reason is we've got several acquisitions that we're looking at around the country that are bigger deals and very accretive revenue-wise, but also have positive EBITDA. So we now can look at deals where we can bring in not only revenues, but the positive EBITDA with it. And the way we analyze these deals is we look at them and we try and decide what we can add to the mix. So we won't be buying revenues or EBITDA just because we want to be accretive. We want to make sure that our marketing programs are going to benefit that new purchase. As I said, we've got several of these deals that we're looking at, and I would expect as we move to the summer that $30 million in cash will be fully deployed on acquisitions. That's very interesting because you're generating revenue through the businesses that you're operating under the Noblest Health umbrella, but you're looking ahead, and you did a recent debt financing to purely fund new acquisitions, thereby not touching general revenue. That's correct, and the importance of GE Capital on our side is they're there to support us 
on acquisitions. And if you think about your typical acquisition, you like to think of kind of a triple play. There's part cash, there's part debt, and there's part stock in your traditional deals. This allows us now to use GE Capital on the debt side. Cash, we've now got significant cash in the bank, and our stock is very nicely priced right now. Great currency for acquisitions. So we're going to take advantage of the nice position we're in, and we're going to bring in some portfolio companies. These are companies that will own 5, 10, or 15 ASCs. And you know, as I alluded to earlier, we're going to look at how we can affect them. But since some of these are not geographically related, they're not in Texas, we're also going to look very hard at the management teams because we're going to need to keep those management teams, especially as we reach outside of Texas and Arizona. You mentioned stock. And let's delve into that, since that's a large focus of this particular program. We've seen solid growth in your stock price during the last few months, and I'm sure your shareholders are, for the most part, quite satisfied up until now. Most likely, you've always known that your company was probably undervalued, and the market is recognizing that and responding. I'm sure there are several factors involved. How do you account for the positive reaction in the market overall? Well, you know, first and foremost, we've got the numbers. So we have produced numbers. Our forecasts each year have been extremely aggressive. I remember the first forecast that I did when I started here, we said we were going to go from, I think, 14 million the prior year, that we were going to reach 30, low 30s. And a lot of the institutions we talked to were skeptical, obviously, because the company was very small, but we hit that number. And then the next year, we said we were going to hit 74 million, going from 31 million. And there was a lot of skepticism, but we actually started getting some nibbles. Some of the institutions started biting, so they'd come in some private placements, and they started buying our stock, and that increased our visibility. And then when we reported in the first quarter this year that we actually hit 84 million, we exceeded that stretch. That's quite a bite to go from 30 to 84 million. And so when we put out our forecast for 2015 and said, look, we're going to expect to hit 205 million in revenue with about 42 million in EBITDA, people weren't skeptical anymore. And we went on a very well-defined roadshow, non-funding roadshows through the first four months to really get the word out to the institutions. I think the strides we We've made with bringing on GE Capital, doing this fundraise now, people start to understand that we're clearly going to exceed $205 million for the year. The acquisitions are all going to be accretive for the company, and people are starting to understand that this may, in fact, really just be the tip of the iceberg where we're at right now. So you're always delivering? We have. We've had that good fortune to deliver every single time on our forecast. As long as we keep performing here, I think that we'll get even more visibility. And we did add our New York Stock Exchange listing just a few weeks ago. So that was a long process, but we came out about two weeks ago on the NYSE. We're in a somewhat of a quiet period. We can't do a roadshow while we're waiting to close the funding, but I would suspect as we move to the back half of May, we'll be back out on the road to tell our story. And if you think about it, probably 90% of our institutional ownership is from Canada. So we haven't really touched the U.S. market yet. And so we find that to be quite exciting that we can now start telling our story and we've got great historical numbers to back everything up. So the team is excited to get back out on the road here in a few weeks. Well, I was going to ask you how you quantify your upside now going forward, but I think you just answered that question by saying that you're introducing Nobilis to a market of more U.S. investors. 
Would that be right? Yeah, I think so. And, and we've got some interesting acquisitions we're looking at now. I would suspect that as we move into the middle of the summer period, that we'd be able to do a couple things. One, build a 2016 pro forma with our newer acquisitions built in and also update our 2015 pro forma, give people a clear picture of how we're going to end up for the year and how the acquisitions have now been absorbed. So a lot of excitement around that. And as long as we keep delivering organically and through acquisitions, pretty confident we can keep our shareholders very happy. And that's how you would describe the next six to 12 months ahead as far as growth is concerned. Yeah, because there's just so many nice size portfolio companies, I call that old school model. They're there, price is low, and when we apply our marketing concept to that, we think that we make them better. So this is a neat model. You're not just acquiring to get their revenues, you're acquiring to establish a bigger platform. And I think it's been a plan that's worked very well over the last couple of years. There really isn't any reason why we shouldn't be able to continue doing that, but on a larger scale. You're targeting individuals with spine and foot pain. With the advent of your CuraSpine and New Step brands wrapped in into your marketing campaign. The Noblest Health website is intuitive. You're offering a free MRI review, turning the process of obtaining relief into a positive experience in an area where folks tend to be very nervous about treatment in these arenas. In spine, there's, we call it a continuum of care. We have different levels for each type of patient. And what we try and do is you want to avoid surgery unless you just have to do it. So in the beginning of our process, we'll have pain management. So you try and use injections to reduce the swelling and see if that resolves the problem. I would say there's a great percentage, don't hold me to the number, but probably at least half of the cases resolve that way. So pretty simple, pretty quick. The next level is we have a laser procedure. The laser will run up the spinal canal and that can remove scar tissue. It can often remove the problem without any surgery. That resolves probably another 30% of the problem. So now you're left with, after those kind of procedures, you've got about 20% of the people who have not got the type of relief they need. And then we move into to what we call the minimally invasive spine procedures. We certainly recruit the best doctors at each level to perform these services. We offer that whole continuum of care that's so important to the patient. So we're not a one-stop shop coming to our office and we're going to cut. We try and avoid that unless it needs to be done. And I can tell you with minimally invasive surgery, we've had great results there too. You've got different levels of care that are appropriate. And we certainly have a lot of patients who will call that have been through other pain injection programs or they've even had surgery before but it didn't resolve and we've been very successful at resolving their problems through either an additional laser program or minimally invasive surgery. Many times people will attempt to suffer through the pain than to try and get effective treatment, correct? They do that as long as we can educate them that whether through the laser or through the pain management or even through the minimally invasive surgery, the recovery time is so quick. So the patients don't understand initially that when they come in for the pain or the laser surgery procedures, they're out that same day. Well, the same thing is true with our minimally invasive spine surgery. 90% of the cases, the patient is released that afternoon. So they'll do the procedure in the morning and they're out in the afternoon. Some of the more complex cases might need an overnight stay and we have hospitals for that. But the patients are often walking out of the surgery center. Well, the insurance companies must be very happy with Nobilis. Yeah, because the whole problem with the cost structure of healthcare in the States is moving towards cost containment. And this is what the outpatient surgery centers do. The costs are lower than hospitals. We're right in the correct market for our services there. Harry, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today on the program and congratulations on all of your successes and 
for those that are on the way. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it, Alice. Thank you for having us, and we'll continue to work hard on our end. I've been speaking with Harry Fleming, Executive Chairman of Noblest Health, trading on the New York Stock Exchange's HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com or download the entire Ellis Mart Report on iTunes. We follow those that like to be followed. Follow them yourself at ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson, President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human reovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. Now, if you wouldn't mind, give us a summary on Oncolytics Biotech. Oncolytics Biotech is a company focused solely on treatment of cancers. And the technology that we're using is to use a live agent, in this case, a virus that is naturally oncolytic, which all it means is it will infect as a virus, will infect cells that are tumors and, and or cancer bearing and kill them, and also causes a secondary immune response. And so what you've got is an agent that actually will address potentially you know, cancers in people. That program has been going on for a while now. We've treated over 1,100 patients in various clinical studies with 13 different cancers. We're actually moving into the very you know, last stages of clinical development right now in a number of indications. It's a very exciting technology. It's certainly very timely. We have colleague companies that are moving along with different viruses and looking at different cancers at the same time as us. And as a group, I think it's one of those technologies that people are going to look back in five or 10 years and go, wow, there's a number of different cancers being treated with these viruses. And so it's something certainly to look forward to. You just announced your financial results and operational highlights for the quarter ending March 31st, 2015. Let's review those financials because they're particularly interesting to shareholders and potential shareholders. Well, of course, financial resources are the lifeblood of any biotechnology company. I mean, the vast majority of the industry runs off its cash reserves as it's going towards product approvals. We came out of 2014 with just a little over a year of cash on hand. And after our first quarter was over in 2015, we have a little over two years of cash in hand and having funded the quarter as well. And we've done that through a couple of different financial instruments. But it's just very important to maintain that cash financing horizon uh, out that period of time. And we're very satisfied with that result. Now, down the road, of course, investors want to know what the revenue stream is going to look like. How are you addressing those questions? In oncology, anyway, one typically looks at each cancer separately and generates a potential cash flow stream from a potential market penetration and market size. And so, for example, if you were looking at pancreatic cancer, there's about 40,000 new cases a year in the United States. 35 or 36,000 of those cases will die within a year of diagnosis. So when one's looking at, for example, assessing the pancreatic cancer market for our potential product, one looks at the genetic basis for the patients that could be potentially treated. So you're looking around two-thirds of that 40,000. You do a realistic assessment of what kind of market penetration you would get say 10 or 20%, and you come up with a number that's probably around eight or 10,000 patients a year. Could be treated with real license times a typical $100,000 for a treatment course of, for these new age biologics. And that gives you a, you know, a marketing number that people can back out on a time discounted basis. And you repeat as necessary. If your agent like ours is active apparently in more than one cancer, then you just stack that up. And that's how 
the analysts build up the financing models for those sorts of things. The absolute key number for people is when that first marketing approval comes. That marks the transition from a cash burning entity like we are now and like everybody pretty much is to a profitable entity. That's a significant milestone and we will be letting people know and letting our investors know what our registration pathway is and what that timeline is in the very near future. Oh, fantastic. So we can look forward to updates as they're happening, correct? Absolutely. Probably the most important piece of information that we get asked by our shareholders is what is the timeline to finish and what is the path to the finish? So we've been spending a great deal of time with regulators, both here in North America and over in Europe, with key opinion leaders, clinicians, investors coming up with a registration plan. And that's probably the most eagerly anticipated piece of information about Oncolytics that I could say. So there are several revenue streams that we can look forward to potentially. Absolutely. This agent is real license, the one we're under development, appears to be active against a percentage of all cancers that have solid tumor cancer. And it's a pretty consistent percentage, sort of 60, 65%. You can demonstrate some kind of activity, either tumor regression or lifespan extension. It appears as if Reolysin is active against around two-thirds of any solid tumor cancer. So in any population with solid tumors, say prostate or breast or colorectal or lung, to some degree. Each one of those actually represents a separate marketing opportunity and a separate patient population for us to treat. You were quoted in the recent news release saying, in the first quarter, we obtained orphan drug designation from the U.S. FDA and the EMA in Europe for a number of different indications, which will support future developments of realicin. Now, before the interview, you were telling me about gastric cancer and how this is specifically appropriate for that particular type of cancer. Would you elaborate on that, please? Well, some cancers are fairly uncommon, if you want to think of it that way. So cancers like fallopian tube cancer, it's very rare, it's, you know, less than 10,000 patients a year every year in the United States. Gastric cancers are fairly rare. In large number sense, things like pancreatic cancer is fairly rare, but they are all life-threatening diseases. And so the orphan drug program at the FDA and the orphan program, which is similar but not the same in Europe at the EMA, provide a structure that allows companies to spend the development dollars and the time and energy required to develop products for these rarish diseases, and in our case, rarish cancers. We have embarked upon a program to take a look at the cancers that we think are most likely reasonably treatable with real license that are also rare. And as a result of that, we filed a number of orphan drug applications, both in Europe and in the United States. So we got pancreatic cancer, orphan drug designation in the United States, and in Europe, we got ovarian cancer and its associated cancers, fallopian tube and primary peritoneal in the United States and in Europe. And separately in the United States, we filed for pediatric glioblastoma or gliomas, which is, you know, children with glioblastoma. The the FDA was kind enough to widen that out to all glioblastomas for us. Gastric cancer is a very interesting cancer, and it's one of those cancers that goes from being very treatable, sort of like melanoma. If you get melanoma early, it's very treatable to very untreatable, i.e. it's a very serious disease, very quickly, almost within days or weeks. And so if you catch it early, you can treat it, and if you catch it late, it is life-threatening. So we've had a particular interest in this. We've had a number of patients, not specific gastric cancer studies, but gastric cancer patients in general studies that have all responded well to real license therapy. And so we thought we'd take the opportunity to draw a circle around it and place some emphasis on it and allow us to actually get in to treat this fairly rare cancer that has very serious consequences. Now, you're not a Johnny-come-lately CEO at all. Let's review your background as well as your passion for cancer treatment and a business model that makes sense for the company and your shareholders. Those two things are important, linked together. Absolutely. My 
education, I'm a microbiologist. I have my PhDs in microbiology and immunology. And I was happily working along on in an infectious disease company I founded and had been doing that for five or six years. And I had some personal experiences with cancer. I had cancer and uh, my mom and my favorite uncle both died of cancer all within a very short period of time. And this very interesting technology walked through the door from the University of Calgary here in Calgary. Iris, was my background in infectious disease microbiology and treated cancer. So we formed a company around that technology and got working on that. So I've been a public company CEO since 1994, both in NASDAQ and TSX companies, in the previous company, and then in Oncolytics, which makes me fairly long in the tooth in Canada for this business. But this is possibly the most exciting area to be in at this time I, I can think of in biotechnology. We've got a technology that's actually showing, I think, a great deal of promise. And at the same time, we're seeing all these developments in oncology that mesh in very well with what we do, but are just moving the treatment of cancer ahead. Like it's a once in a generation leap forward in the treatment of cancer. And there's two specific elements for that. One is diagnosis. We're actually getting much, much better at being able to tell people the genetic basis of their cancers, which products should work because we know the genetics before they're even treated and diagnosing patients earlier and earlier and earlier. And at the same time, all these developments in harnessing the, the human being's own immune system in helping treat cancer. Those two things together have just completely changed the landscape of cancer therapy. So it's the best place to be in oncology at this time. And for us, having a technology that fits in with all that perfectly, it's the best place for us to be as a company. It's a lot of fun right now, and it's very exciting. And I think we're on the verge as an industry and as a company of helping out a lot of people with cancer. Speaking of which, we're getting a lot of positive response since you began with us on the program. And I'm sure there are many in our audience that either are afflicted with cancer, they have friends or relatives that are afflicted as well, and they're thinking, how can I get involved? How can I become involved in a clinical trial? I'm sure you feel these types of calls on a regular basis. We actually get quite a few calls asking asking about the technology and depending on where they're calling from, in this case, talking about the United States, one can access already existing clinical trials just by going to clinicaltrials.gov and looking into real lysin or real virus and you'll actually come up with a list of clinical studies and different indications. For example, we're about to start enrolling in a pediatric glioma study, so children's brain cancer study. Once that's up on clinicaltrials.gov, people can actually have the contact details, talk to the investigator at the site where it's been treating patients and actually see if they can get themselves, their friends, their families enrolled. And that's just one example. If there isn't a clinical study, a much lower possibility is to get a special access type of a process going. But that is a very rare occurrence for us in the United States. We do a lot more of that in Canada. The system is just different, just an easier process to go through to get patients treated outside of clinical programs. But both avenues are available in the United States. Well, Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program. Look forward to having a chat with you soon. Great. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, the CEO and president of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Find a link to their website on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire program on iTunes. Getting hungry? Eat knowledge. Find it at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Ross Orr, president of Backtech Environmental. Trading on the OTC is BCCEF, and on the CSE, the Canadian Stock Exchange, as BAC. Backtech is a pioneering environmental technology company that has developed and commercialized a proprietary technology to remediate highly toxic tailing areas resulting from abandoned mining operations. Backtech's core technology called bioleaching employs naturally occurring bacteria 
harmless to both humans and the environment, to oxidize the sulfide materials left behind after years of mining. Ross, welcome back to the program. Thank you. If you don't mind, give our audience a brief overview of your company and what your focus is with regard to cleaning up toxic mining tailings and making them profitable, not just for your company, but the surrounding communities that you serve in the world. Bioleaching's been around since the mid-80s. First perfected by Goldfields of South Africa, a big company that everybody's aware of. Secondly, by Bactech. The first plant that we built was in 1994, and we've built three plants subsequent to that. But in essence, what we do is use bacteria to oxidize sulfides, particularly arsenopyrate, which is arsenic sulfide, into a form where the gold is readily recoverable, where it wouldn't be using conventional cyanide techniques. So effectively, the bacteria, their job in these large vats is to attack the sulfides, break them down, which allows them for conventional recovery of gold and silver and copper, for that matter. Hence the expression that you've coined on your website, our bugs eat rocks. It's the simplest way to get people to stop at a booth at a show and ask you, what is that? mean. <laughs> it's not a topic that's well known to people and it takes time to sit down and educate people about what it is we actually do. You know, it's interesting that you would mention Booth at a trade show because that's absolutely where I met you, I believe, 17 years ago in San Francisco. You've been at this a very long time. Yes, we have actually. And through many different machinations of the company, the most recent one, I split the company in half back in 2010 into a bacterial oxidation company used for mineral processing, i.e. for mines, and then also bacterial oxidation to be used for the cleanup of toxic acid-generating tailings. And I took the easy route and went with the environmental side. At least I thought it was easy at the time. How has this issue changed in almost 20 years? Well, I think the fact that we have split the company in half to pursue environmental remediation with bioleaching, we're the only people that do that. I mean, Goldfields is more focused on using their technology to produce gold ounces, and the plants that they built tend to be a lot larger than the ones that we've built. The largest one we have is about 200 tons a day of concentrate, keeping in mind that a concentrate is a percentage of the actual rock that goes through a mine. We're throwing out a word called artisanal mining. What exactly is that and why is it so bad? Well, artisanal mining, especially since the advent of the increase in the gold price several years ago up into the thousands of dollars per ounce arena, has led to an absolute war on the environment in countries like Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Nicaragua, Congo, Philippines, etc. What it is is basically your mom and pop out there with a pick and a shovel digging a hole in the ground and some of these holes go as deep as 200 feet in the ground. It's very dangerous mining. Many people are killed through rock collapses, but effectively they scratch out their living by delivering rock to a mineral processor in the various countries for cents on the dollar, really, to stay alive. But they don't pay a lot of attention to the environment and one of the worst things they do is they use mercury to amalgamate gold and silver from the rock. The recoveries are anywhere from 5% to maybe 50%, depending on what the nature of the ore is. But what they don't get, they throw into the rivers, they throw over their shoulder. I mean, it, there is no environmental plan for the refuse that they generate. So I imagine that this adversely affects this artisanal mining, agriculture, farming, drinking water, things of that nature. Oh, especially uh, rivers. I heard the other day that Peru is looking at sewing 
building Ecuador for some ridiculous number of $60 billion because the rivers that are flowing out of southern Ecuador into Peru are dead. I mean, they've killed all the fish, the wildlife, and of course, that water is used for agricultural purposes, as you pointed out. So you're spraying mercury onto farmers' fields. It can't be good for anybody in the long run. I mean, it's, it's terrible. Now, I came across an article related to this by a person called Marcelo Vega from the University of British Columbia, who has evidently spent the last 10 years attempting to solve the problem in Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru of the elimination of mercury by artisanal miners for the recovery of gold and silver. Well, I've actually spoken with Dr. Vega about this problem, and what he's trying to do is convince the masses that it, it makes more sense to deliver their rock to a conventional gravity flotation circuit where the sulfides can be floated and then separated without the use of mercury. What they do now, of course, is they use the mercury to amalgamate the gold. Then they deliver the end product to the conventional processor in the area who tends to burn it, which effectively means you're now burning mercury and putting all sorts of hazardous gases into the environment as well. It's just a nightmare. The simple answer, of course, is just to use flotation to separate the gold-bearing sulfides from the rest of the rock, and then you can use your cyanide in a controlled environment so that you can destroy the cyanide when it's done. I don't know what the actual output is, but mercury and cyanide together is not a very nice thing to have. So what are you telling these local miners about using mercury? We're saying to them, look, don't use mercury. Just deliver us the rock. We'll crush it, grind it, float it, and then we'll pay you more money for your gold than you would get using your archaic or historic processes they use for recovering metal. It's some of the pictures and videos I've seen with Dr. Vega, it's like thousand-year-old technology. What makes you different, let's say, than the six or seven companies that are building processing plants in Peru for, I imagine, the same purpose? Well, again, there's two types of ore. There's oxide ores, which means the sulfides have already been oxidized, and therefore the gold silver is relatively free. They provide crushing and gold recovery for these small miners. When you get into the difficult ores, the arsenopyrites, which are refractory golds, you need an additional method to liberate the gold. Historically, they burned it. It was smelting. But of course, you're putting arsenic trioxide gas up the flue, and that's been shut down. So it's very hard to find places to process our cenopyrite. That's what we do. Every bioleach plant of the 20-odd there are in the world treats our cenopyrite. We produce what is called a ferric arsenate, which is after the bacteria have destroyed or oxidized the sulfides, the arsenic and the iron band together and drop out as a U.S. EPA-approved landfillable. Not that we would ever do that, but it just proves the point that it's a final benign form of arsenic. Is this still an underreported issue worldwide? As many times as you've been on this program throughout the last five or ten years or so, you would think that it's a well-known issue. I think environmentalists know about it. Certainly folks living in the countries we've discussed know about it. It would seem that the IFC or the World Bank would be interested in, in funding something like this, for instance. Just recently, as recent as two weeks ago, the Canadian government gave $8 million to a group out of Victoria, BC called, I think it's the Artisanal Gold Council or something. It's an NGO. You know, they're basically out there trying to spread the word that this has to stop, but it is also involves an education process for these miners. They don't trust us, and for probably just reasons. They're getting, in some cases, with the arsenopyrate they're mining, they're getting as little as five cents on the dollar. We can pay them 25 cents on the dollar, make their lives a lot better, reduce the amount of mercury that's being used in the process and still make a great buck for ourselves. That's what it's all about at the end of the day. We need to maximize our profits as a public company. How do you make money from these tailings? 
So what we would do in the case of Peru and southern Ecuador, we would probably build a flotation plant, a 100 ton per day flotation plant. Capital cost one and a half to two million dollars. We would then offer the local miners better prices than what they're getting now for the material that they produce. And I, when I say better, I mean sometimes up to five times as much as they're getting now. We have to bridge that trust. We have to prove to them that they're going to be doing a lot better dealing with us than they will be trying to do it on their own. That hundred tons of rock that they deliver on a daily basis, when you consider there are hundreds of thousands of these people doing this mining in both countries, that produces about 20 tons of concentrate. The concentrate would grade probably minimum five ounces of gold per ton. So you've got rock that's now worth $6,000 a ton being shipped west to the coast near Talara, where we'd like to build a uh, bio-leach facility. And at 20 tons a day, the capital for that's probably in the seven to $8 million range. So for $10 million, we're up and running and we're producing on average about 35,000 ounces a year and our margins are quite fat. Ross, how does the project development actually roll out? Well, right now we're going to try and bring a partner in with us who has a, a knowledge of both areas very well. It involves uh, obviously permitting that we have to do with the Peruvian government for both plants. I would say that you're probably looking at about a year's worth of permitting test work to make sure we have the, the right bacteria to process the material that's produced in that area. Six to eight months building after that. So I would say somewhere towards the end of 2016, we should be processing this material. You're going to be building flotation plants in Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, wherever these projects are ultimately. Is, is that not right? Well, that's correct, except it's kind of like we're talking about a, a mine. We're actually talking about several thousand square kilometers where these people operate. It's their job to bring the rock to us, which is nice. We don't have to run around trying to deal with everybody on a one-to-one basis. We say, we built it, now you come and, and deliver it to us and we'll pay you for your product. Very similar to what the other companies you discussed, the six or seven other companies that are processing material in Peru, but oxide material for the most part, not the difficult sulfides that we do. So we're really the only outlet for arsenopyrite rock outside of a smelter, which is about 1,100 kilometers to the south. So they have to drive it down there and then come back empty, obviously. I don't see how anybody can compete with us unless, of course, they build their own bio-leach plant, which is not that easy to do. Well, fantastic. So seemingly, we may be just over a year away from actually facilitating this process. Right. And at the same time, we have our project in Bolivia. Our partner is Comibol, the state mining company of uh, Bolivia. And we are going to be putting in a gravity flotation circuit at a place called Telamayu in southwestern Bolivia that grades very high silver copper tin. And again, that won't be a bio-leach plant initially. We'll be exporting a concentrate, but who knows? Maybe the material ends up at our plant in Peru for processing. Let's talk about funding. Have you got that in place? Well, I've got a term sheet signed with a group called Pala Investments out of Switzerland for 10 million US. The plant itself in Bolivia will probably be in the seven to eight million dollar range, and we'll use the other two million to develop the Peruvian side. We're running two projects at the same time. 16 is going to be a very busy year for us. Excellent. It would seem that this is the kind of issue that would be a friend to people on both sides of the political spectrum. Those individuals or groups that are against mining, especially in these third world countries, and individuals that are really looking to make a profit. And there's a a way to satisfy everybody, put more money in the pockets of the local communities, and satisfy the shareholders of Backtech. Yeah, I I agree 100% with that statement. I mean, you've got people that live hand-to-mouth, literally, in these parts of South America. You can't stop them from doing what they're doing because they're just trying to stay alive. So if, in fact, you accept the fact that this type of mining is going to happen, let's try and do it as organized and as cleanly as possible. On the other hand, there isn't a week that goes by that I don't get one or two calls 
about another project. I mean, sooner or later, you just have to decide, okay, I'm doing this one and this one, and that's it. We're not a big company. Capital in mining, especially in the junior side, is is scarce these days. We seem to have a good rapport with Pala, and I think as long as we put quality projects in front of them, there's no reason to believe that we shouldn't have 100% debt financing, which is what we're doing in Bolivia. The nice thing is with these projects is that the grades are very, very high. The Bolivian grade is about nine ounces of silver, about two and a quarter percent copper, and one percent tin in tailings. And people say, well, how can that be? And I, it's because they used to mine 300 ounces of silver per ton. They didn't get nine ounces. That wasn't a big deal. Likewise, they weren't interested in the copper, so they just passed it right through. They were after the tin, the zinc, and the silver. The payback on these projects is very short, less than two years. Basically, funding really shouldn't be an issue for you then. That can't be said for most junior resource companies at all. Our relationship with Pala seems to be quite good. They've committed to funding Bolivia subject to their due diligence, which will start shortly. And I think as long as we put quality projects in front of them, there's no reason to believe that we shouldn't expect 100% debt financing for all of these projects. The paybacks are very, very quick on these projects, mostly because the grades of the material are very high. This is not a great time overall for the junior mining sector, and funding is rare for many mining companies. On the other hand, you're providing a solution that is going to be, as we've discussed before, beneficial for many different factions, and you will be funded. That is in process. Everything we look at is sitting on surface. That's the difference. And we can identify and quantify an asset literally within three days with a sonic drill rig. We drill 30-foot holes through what effectively is sand, and we have it evaluated or analyzed for grade, and it's either a go or it's a no-go. So yes, I mean, for a fraction of the, quote, exploration cost, we can identify an asset, and that's our decision whether we go ahead or not. Everybody that lends money today or invests money today is looking for cash. Nobody wants to be in the situation where you put out another press release and says you have another 10 meters of two grand gold. People don't care about that anymore. That's not front and center anymore. What people want is cash flow. They want to know you have a real business. And that's effectively what we're striving for. I mean, there's no reason why we couldn't do this once a year for the next 10 years. I mean, there's enough projects around to do that. So in that sense, you stand alone from most junior mining companies in the sector, don't you? Totally. We don't even consider ourselves to be a mining company, Ellis. We're an environmental reclamation company that happens to operate in the mining sector. We bristle at being called a mining company because that's not what we do. People call us a mining company and we're quick to say, no, we're not a mining company. We're an environmental company that's cleaning up acid rock drainage issues and we happen to get paid in the metal that we recover that's associated with that acid rock drainage. What would you say to potential shareholders listening to this program for the first time hearing about your story? They can invest in your company. Why should they? Potentially. We've got 42 million shares outstanding. All of our financing for our plant in Bolivia is debt. The debt will be paid back within two years. Our numbers show an after-tax profit of about 3 million U.S. a year. Doesn't sound like a lot of money, but effectively that's about seven or eight cents a share Canadian on a stock that trades at five cents. What would you say to those listeners that are really interested in your company because of its positive impact on the environment? How can they help? If you wanted to phone and ask questions about the process or what we're doing, I'm more than happy to uh, field those calls and talk to you until you're better informed. That phone number is area code 416-813-0303. That's 416-813-0303. And that's in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Well, Ross, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program. Thanks, Alice. Always fun. I've been speaking today with Ross Orr, the president of Backtech Environmental, trading on the Canadian Stock Exchange with a CSE as BAC. That symbol again is BAC. And on the OTC as BCCEF. Find Backtech's logo on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and click through to their website. 
You can download the Yellow Smart Report in its entirety on iTunes. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. The following segment is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum, trading in the U.S. as WGPLF and on the TSX as WG. Located in the Yukon Territory, Canada, the Wellgreen Project has the potential to become one of the world's largest and lowest-cost open-pit producers of platinum group metals and nickel. Find them on the web at wellgreenplatinum.com. David Morgan is an expert on silver, gold, and precious metals investments. He's a world-renowned lecturer appearing on CNBC and the Fox Business Channel. He's an author having penned Get the Skinny on Silver Investing. And Mr. Morgan is a regular contributor and friend of the Ellis Martin Report. David, welcome back to the program. Well, it's great to be back. I was moseying around your website, came up with The Silver Manifesto. It's a book you've written along with Chris Marchese. Let's talk about it. When I originally published the first book, Get the skinny and silver investing was by a publishing house and they have a very strict format it was kind of a takeoff on the idiot's guide series roughly 100 pages no graphs no charts and in my heart of hearts i really wanted to write kind of the magnus opus on the silver market and chris said well let's get started so chris really dug in and started the process and he and i together wrote look at the silver market from almost any aspect you can imagine ellis the history of silver Silver as a monetary basis, history of silver as United States money. Then we talk about the fraction reserve banking and economics because it's important if you're going to understand how the markets are manipulated, you have to understand fractional reserve banking so you can understand bullion banking and the fractional reserve aspect of bullion banking. Then we went on to talk about how to choose a mining company. And then I wrote a closing chapter about Beyond Silver, which talks about what the monetary system has to do with conditions of the global economy and looking forward about the problems that we face, political, geopolitical problems with this non-ending war, humanity problem with you know the rich getting richer, a lot of people that are barely making it. So I looked at that question from about three or four different aspects with no answers, just questions, and suggested further reading into three gentlemen women and men, three entities that have proposed ideas that I thought were of merit that you could look at longer range. Where could we go as humanity if we start to really, one, get truthful, and two, start to really resolve some of these conflicts? Now, you mentioned war in this conversation here. Do you think war is a driver? Can we exist as an economy without a war machine? Well, that's a very good question. And obviously, the paradigm that Chris Duane so eloquently states is a death and debt paradigm. All many creation as a result of going further into debt. And part of that equation is the military industrial complex. And the military industrial complex would really stagnate if all you did was build war machines or there was no war to use them. The way you sell these products is you have an actual war. Somebody says, oh, I need those jets or I need those ships or I need those bombs or I need whatever. And so would the present economy exist without the war machine? I would probably say no. And I'd be pretty emphatic about that. And that's again, goes to that last chapter with the big question of how do we restructure our priorities as humanity to get away from war? I mean, how human are we if we're killing each other? I mean, every major religion says thou shalt not kill. You have these policemen that were killed, one in New York and one here in the Coeur d'Alene area, very near where I live, considered to be tragic. 
big funerals, lots of hurt feelings, lots of emotion, and all that's valid. Yet at the same time, the United States is out there in, I think it's 52 countries, and there is some kind of skirmish, to put it in polite terms, or wars going on, and there's killing going on. It's almost a hypocritical stance, or this killing is justified, but this one is not. And on and on it goes. I mean, basically, to the core of it, either killing is wrong or it isn't. That's big problems. War is not necessary. Without war or war machine, I think we'd be far more productive and we'd have a much better standard of living on a global basis for humanity at large. That's how I really think. Stay tuned. There's more to come in just a moment. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum. Wellgreen Platinum is a Canadian mining exploration and development company focused on the active advancement of its 100% owned Wellgreen PGM and nickel project toward production. A 2015 economic assessment shows the Wellgreen project located in the Canadian Yukon to be potentially the second largest PGM producer outside Southern Africa and Russia. With average annual production of over 200,000 ounces platinum, palladium, and gold, along with 128 billion pounds of nickel and copper from just 34% of the pit-constrained resource, making it possibly one of the largest in the world. Estimates show that once in production with assets near or at the surface, this low-cost producer may generate cash flow exceeding as much as $330 million per year. Situated along a major highway in a mining-friendly jurisdiction with an active market for PGMs and nickel, and with a strong management team, Wellgreen is certainly to be considered a candidate for your portfolio. Find them on the web at wellgreenplatinum.com. We follow those that like to be followed. Follow them yourself at ellismartinreport.com. Switching over to robotics, a little bit of a shift here in topic, but not that much. We could take that war machine and turn it into a machine that's more useful for humanity, but if machines are making machines, then what do we do with ourselves and how does that translate into money for everyone? Well, these are really big questions, and I'm glad you're asking. I wish I had good answers for people. I have the same question. One, there's going to be some shift in the economic system at large. We're really watching before our eyes with the BRICS, for example, and the AIIB. I mean, there's a move away from the dollar that's been going on some time. Will there always be a world reserve currency? We really don't know. Will there be a global currency? We really don't know. What we do know is that the human being is being usurped by these robots. Let's say, just take for an example, the uh, transportation industry. Right now, with Google Maps, apps and the GPS system, you can basically get in a car that will drive you just about anywhere with the software that's already available. So what that means is you can have transportation that doesn't require human beings. You can have no taxi cab drivers, no UPS drivers, no drivers that drive produce and oil and all the things that are on the road right now. In theory, in a few years, I'm not sure how many, let's say five as an example, all of those jobs will be lost. Well, those will be displaced workers. Where do they get jobs? So I'm agreeing with your point that there are going to be a lot of mouths to feed and not as many jobs to go around possibly. In the present trends, there are disruptions. This could be one, and it could be a while before the quote-unquote the market found jobs for them. So what we really are looking at, in my view, is that there has to be a way to take care of these people that may not be able to find work or there may not be a demand for their skill set. And that's a big problem because it already exists. You've got, what, 42 or 44 million people that are on food assistance in the United States. This is a big problem. And again, there aren't really a lot of solutions that I see, you know, where we're going and where we're going to end. No one has a real clear answer. Well, with almost 94 million people, as I 
understand it, out of work right now. It's no wonder that these riots are happening. I'm sure there may be racial overtones and there may be definite reason why people are frustrated right now, but maybe the real reason is they're not working, they don't have enough money to eat, there's no jobs for them, and they're not coming anytime soon. Well said. First of all, it's a humanity problem. It's not a racial problem. And not that that doesn't enter into it, but that's the elite trying to divide and conquer. It's this group against that group. But go back to the Arab Spring. That was not about geopolitics. That was about food. It was costing too much to eat. That's why those people are out in the street. But that's not what you heard from the mainstream financial press or the mainstream press. In our case here, a lot of it had to do, as you said, with the basics. I can't get enough to sustain myself, or it's costing too much with this zero inflation rate, which is ridiculous. So people are, as Gerald Salente says, when you lose everything, you've got nothing left to lose, people lose it. And people feel that way. Feel like I've got nothing else to lose. I am going to get out there on the street. What are they going to do? Put me in jail and feed me? Hey, maybe I'll go to the street. So that's what it's come to. And the trend is clear. So this non-recovery that they keep preaching as a recovery is only going to probably escalate, meaning that you're going to see more and more hot spots, quote unquote, in the summer months. And this is due to not because the weather is hot, it's because people have had it and they have lost it and are taken to the streets. The old adage of the Oracle of Delphi, to thine own self be true, has a lot of merit. I mean, if you're always seeking something outside of yourself, then you'll never be satisfied. That's why there's so much greed, because people are looking for something that they can never get. And of course, this is where religion comes in. But in my view, the mainstream religion is basically out of sync with the population, almost any country you want to go to. And so a lot of people are looking for alternatives there as well. And of course, I don't mean to make this a religious or a philosophical discussion, but what I want to make as a point is that people are looking for truth. And one of the truths is that this debt paradigm is not working and that honesty in the financial system works, honesty in the political system works, honesty in the religious system works, and we're barraged with a bunch of half-truths and uh, obfuscation of actual real fact that would help people to really understand not only themselves, but reality at large. We're basically in a situation now, Ellis, and have been for quite some time, where nothing in the world works the way you think it does. You know, it's interesting because you can almost say that nothing in life works the way you think it does. You have to more or less to survive in this world and in this life is to be open-minded and not try and storyboard or dictate how your future is going to be. You can have some general sense of direction and passion, but you can't plan out everything with so many unabsolutes or absolutes that you have no control over to deal with every day. It's really like a video game that we're living in. We are getting a bit philosophical. And you mentioned religion. Now, the problem that I have with religion and whether we believe in God or not is not the topic. It's not what we're discussing here. But religion, we're dealing with an archaic structure that's thousands of years old that has some relevant value in it. I imagine you could extract that from every religion. But what I think you're alluding to is dealing with the now, dealing with the reality, dealing with this present moment. How do we take this present moment and make sure that we're building something positive from it? That's really what we should be talking about. I agree or tend to agree with what you said. I just want to assuage anybody because I don't think I've ever talked religion before of all the interviews I've done, and I've done many. And again, I just want to reassert to everyone, I am free market. So that goes along with the principles of the founding of this country which means freedom of religion. So you can believe whatever you want to believe, and I have no problem with that. just want to make that clear, because the basis of what I believe, you should also honor that. 
if I'm going to be tolerant of any religion out there, and I should be if I say I am what I say I am, then you as well should reciprocate in kind. Not that everyone can or will, or they think they do and they don't, but regardless, away from the editorializing before I speak, definitely need to get back to the core. I mean, as we talked at the beginning of the interview, all religions say it's wrong to kill, yet here we go killing all the time, and yet you even say God's on this side or God's on that side. Well, God isn't for war. I'm for peace. I'm not against anything. But, but isn't God being used as the excuse for war in many cases? That's my whole point, is that they're using God, quote-unquote, to justify certain actions and certain religions and certain situations that validate or vindicate in their mind the idea that God certainly wants it this way. And yet at the core ethics of the religion you could find that that's not necessarily true. David, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. A fascinating conversation today. We strayed off the typical path. We covered some subject matter that's definitely worth covering, at least for people like us. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. My pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with the Silver Guru, David Morgan. His website is silver-guru.com or themorganreport.com. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. The preceding segment is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum. Trading in the U.S. is WGPLF and on the TSX is WG. Located in the Yukon Territory, Canada, the Wellgreen Project has the potential to become one of the world's largest and lowest cost open pit producers of platinum group metals and nickel. Find them on the web at wellgreenplatinum.com. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.